So 2 Kings chapter 20 is going to be our text. We're going to stay there. I want to start out with a quote that I, I read. It's been weeks ago that I read this, but it hit me. It was a gut punch for me, honestly. You guys ever feel like you just get cococked just out of nowhere? No, you're just not looking. You're not expecting it. I was just, I don't even know what I was reading, and I came across, across this quote, and I'll read it to you, and it said this. It said, if all your prayers came true this week, in other words, if God answered all of your prayers for this week, who would be converted? Whose marriage would be restored? What great gospel advance might there be? And what missionaries would be sent out? That was the quote, and I, I just stared at it. I just sat there and looked at it and thought, man, I'm praying for petty things so often. And I don't, I don't want to miscommunicate with you this morning. God tells us to pray for everything that burdens us. Small things, big things. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a prayer. That may seem small to some people, but to others, they don't know if they're going to get their daily bread. The Bible says the hairs of our head are numbered. God cares about little details that may seem shallow or superficial or trite to others. He wants us to unburden ourselves. There's not one bird that falls to the ground without his say-so. So I'm not telling you to not pray about things that may seem little in the eyes of others. But what I am telling you is that God wants us to pray for kingdom-minded things too. Not just for our neighbor's cat to get well. As important as that is, we should pray for those things. But as I look and survey my prayers for this year, I was convicted. And I was challenged. And I thought, if God answered my prayers, would people that know me and that know my situation and know my family, will they look and say, wow, that, that's God. That's God doing that. Only, only God could fix that. Or only God could save that person. Or only God can send that missionary out. Only God can reconcile those people that are at odds with one another. So I was, I was convicted. Maybe you are too, to hear that. God does care about little things, but are we living, are we really living on prayer? And I don't say that because I like Bon Jovi or I'm a child of the 80s. That really is, I think, what this text is teaching us. Hezekiah's entire life was really one of, of praying for great things. And maybe, you've, maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you know a missionary or have read a biography of, of some spiritual giant. Or you just read the biblical history. There's men and women both that, that have done this. If you look at Hannah in the Old Testament, she was barren and she was praying for a child. And God answered her prayer in an amazing way. He gave Israel the first prophet through her prayer. She was praying big things. She wanted God to be glorified. She wanted God to be honored. You can look at history. Look at St. Augustine's mother, Monica. Her son was a pagan by all rights. Pagan. Had no regard for God, for Christ, for the Bible. Was drifting from orthodox truth. And she prayed for years she would go and see her pastor and pray, and eventually he turned her away and he said, look, God cannot ignore such tears. Go in peace. May not always be the best thing to tell somebody praying because we don't know. But she took that as comfort and God converted uh, Augustine and made him one of the greatest theological minds in the first century. And there's many other things we could look at for an example. But I want to look at Hezekiah this morning just for a few minutes. And here's our, here's our sermon outline. I'm just going to see three things in this story. Three things. Uh, first thing is this. Bad things happen to God's people. Bad things sometimes 
happen to God's people who are faithful. Second point is this. Our prayers and God's power are related. In fact, I would say they're inextricably linked together. You can't separate the two. When God shows up and does amazing and powerful things, somebody's praying. You may not ever know who it was, but there's somebody praying. Somebody's praying. And third is don't pray in your own name. And we'll get to, get to those one at a time. And the first point is this. Bad things happen to God's people. Look at the text here. It says, it says this. It says, in those days... Hezekiah became sick. Now, I want to hit the pause button there and tell you this. The Old Testament is so amazing. It's so cool because there's multiple angles to view an event or a story or some person's life. Did you know that? In the New Testament, if you want to read about the life of Jesus, you've got four different angles. You've got Matthew's version, Mark's version, Luke's version, and John's version. And they all sync together. They don't contradict one another. They complement one another. Well, in the Old Testament, in the period of the kings like Hezekiah, did you know that there's 1st and 2nd Samuel? There's also 1st and 2nd Kings. There's also 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Sometimes you can take from each story and weave this beautiful tapestry together of what actually took place. And that's the case here with Hezekiah. So I'm going to pull from some different sources. But if you back up the the tape a little bit, what you see is that Hezekiah was a faithful king. He's a faithful king, and it really comes out of nowhere. Sometimes God does that. Did you know that Hezekiah's father, his name, was King Ahaz? And he was one of the most straight-up, legit pagan kings in the history of Israel. Man was a pagan. He sacrificed his son in the fires of Moloch, a false god. Can you imagine that, dads? Can you imagine being so straight-up pagan that you offer your son, you allow your son to be burned alive in the hands of this bronze statue of a pagan god. Isn't that amazing? He did that. He, he was like a notoriously uh, career-long idolater. So I don't know where in the world Hezekiah came from, That's, which would be like a sub-point to this sermon. Uh, sometimes faithful people come from nowhere. It wasn't the parents doing. Uh, god just chose to manifest, like, look what I can do whenever I want to. But Hezekiah's name means strength of Jehovah. Which is also crazy because usually your dad or your mom names you, right? Well, his parents were pagan, so I don't know who named Hezekiah, but he seems to drop out of, out of nowhere. And man, did he make a splash because for 150 years in Israel, there had been nothing but pretty much bad kings. Everyone's departing from Jehovah, departing from Yahweh. They're going their own way. They're living virtually pagan, atheistic lives. And then Hezekiah arrives on the scene. And he says, you know what? I want to restore and reform worship in Israel. He tore down all the high places. He cleansed the temple, Jesus style, but in the Old Testament. He brought the word of God back. In fact, if you're reading his story in the book of Chronicles, it takes the chronicler three chapters to to catalog all the faithful acts that Hezekiah did. Check this out. I want to read uh, 2 Kings version to keep it short, okay? And he, that is Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places, he broke the pillars, he cut down the Asherah, that's like this pagan worship mechanism that they would erect. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. You know, people worship anything, (laughs) won't they? The bronze snake that they uh, erected in the wilderness, they started worshiping that instead of the God that told them to to do it. Anyway, verse 5, check this out. 
Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. That word held fast in Hebrew, it means to cling to somebody. It means to cling. It's the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when Moses says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be what? Joined together to his wife. Stuck together like glue is the idea. Hezekiah was so faithful, he clung to the Lord. Think, think of a, like a little kid grabbing their daddy's leg. That was Hezekiah's relationship to God. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart to the right or to the left. No king like him before, no king like him afterwards. He kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. He didn't pay money to the Assyrian king to keep him at bay like all the other kings did. He would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. He's an amazing king. He's faithful. And yet, and yet, do you know what happened? Do you know the story of Hezekiah? What happened when he was the king? Two things happened. And, and you can't always rely on the chronology because the writer is not always concerned to give you the proper order. Sometimes he has a theological purpose and he'll put things out of order. But two things happened in those days. The first thing was this. The king of Assyria encamped against Hezekiah. In fact, it's really interesting if you read the version. Now, now stay with me here. I know there's a lot of scripture, but this is all really important for you to understand what was going on. Listen to the way that the author of 2 Chronicles says this. After all these deeds of faithfulness, by Hezekiah the king. He's been faithful. He clung to the Lord. He's walking in obedience. He's obeying the commandments. He's tearing down the false worship places and the Asherahs. After all these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. What in the world? <laughs> Do you see it? After these deeds of faithfulness. Now, if we're honest in here this morning, that's a problem for us. We do not like that. That's not how Christianity is supposed to work. After all these deeds of faithfulness, the Assyrians come. What the heck? Have you ever wondered that as a Christian? You can tell the truth. You can be honest in here. God, I'm living my life as faithfully as I know how. I know I'm flawed. I know I'm imperfect. But here I am. I'm in church. I'm reading my Bible when I'm able. I'm praying. I'm trying to raise my children up. I'm trying to love my spouse. And yet, the cancer comes anyway. Or God takes one of your children anyway. Or God takes your parent anyway. Or your marriage has fallen to pieces anyway. Or you're passed over for a promotion at work. Or the injustice falls on you anyway. Or financial collapse comes anyway. After all these deeds of faithfulness. That's a perplexing problem for Christians. They don't understand it. Did you hear the list? Hezekiah's resume? After all these deeds of faithfulness, the Assyrians came and camped out. And, and they were barbaric and notoriously cruel. Do you, know, do you know much about the Assyrians? you know what they did to their enemies? They would skin them alive. I'm not, I know that's kind of graphic, but you need to know this. Because Hezekiah's probably thinking, okay, there's like 40, 40 cities strung out from the, on the path from Assyria to Judah. And every city that this wicked king encountered, he plundered, he pillaged, he raped. 
And now he's encamped at Judah. And what would you be thinking if you were Hezekiah? So this is how God treats his faithful servants. I'm about to be scanned alive as the king of Judah because I've served God. What the heck, God? What in the world? I thought that. I know you thought it. If you're honest, come on. You can be honest. And not only that, as if that's not enough, our account in those days, what else happened to Hezekiah? He's sick and he's dying and he's in bed. Oh, that's just, that's double trouble, isn't it? A fierce, barbaric, cruel king is, is encamped outside the gates of Judah. And you can read the account. If you want to later today, you can go home and read. This, this king is sending all these threatening letters. He's trying to intimidate Hezekiah. He wants him to, to submit so there's no battle. He's speaking and taunting all the soldiers on the wall. And then on top of that, Hezekiah's dying. He's in a sick bed. And the prophet comes and says, hey, thus says the Lord, get your stuff in order. Your day's come. You're going to die, buddy. Don't even worry about the king of Assyria. The grim reaper will get to you before he does. Your days are numbered. Now, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking the same thing that a good friend of mine years ago thought when his wife, unbeknownst to him, had been embezzling money from her employer for years, like for a decade. And one day, the feds knocked on the door of my friend's house and took his wife away, and it sh absolutely shattered him. His sense of betrayal and trust. They had a little girl they were trying to raise, and they were having marriage problems. And he came to me and he said, look, man, you're the preacher. What do I do here, man? I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I feel betrayed. I'm lonely. It had been like months. And he said, she's going to be in there for a long time, maybe the rest of her life. I can't do this, man. I got to move on with my life. And I said, bro, listen, God wants you to be faithful, man. You, you pledged yourself. You took a vow before God for better or for worse. Yeah, this is worse, granted. But you took a vow, man. You need to be faithful. And he said, you're right, man. I want to honor what I said. I want to honor God. And so he did. And you know what? Eventually, she was let out of prison for good behavior. And do you know what she did to my friend the day that she was released? You know what she did? She served in divorce papers. The day she was let out, he'd been waiting on her for years. And she served in papers. You know what he thought? After all these deeds of faithfulness, the Assyrians come anyway. You're sick on your deathbed anyway. So what's the point? That's what a lot of people think. And listen, I want to tell you this because you need, you need to know this. A lot of people view Christianity like a lucky rabbit's foot. You know? It's like I'm hedging my bets. As long as I'm, I'm walking the line and towing the line, things are going to be good for me. Well, listen, that's a dangerous, I would call it a heresy because it's prosperity gospel. It means that God always wants you to be healthy and God always wants you to be wealthy and God, all, God always wants you to hit home runs and get the yard of the year award. And as long as you're a Christian and you're towing the line, that's going to happen. Listen, Christianity it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. In fact, my wife is in the back today teaching a class and she was reading to me on the way here. And I said, I'm going to use that. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says that there was a priest. His name was Zechariah and his wife's name was Elizabeth. And they were faithful and they were righteous and they walked in all the commandments and the statutes of God. And then it says this, and yet they were barren and they had no child and they were advanced in age. What the heck? <laughs> we're faithful, we're obeying God and you won't give us children. 
And that still happens today, doesn't it? It does. And people are ready to throw their hands up and say, Lord, what's, it, what's the use to serve you if this is the way things are? After all these acts of faithfulness, sometimes the Assyrians come anyway. Sometimes the marriage collapses anyway. So what's going on here? Well, that's point two. Our prayers and God's power are related. They are related. And look at this, look at this uh, story again. 2 Kings 20, verse 2. Because the, the prophet came and he said, thus says the Lord. You're going to die. You're not going to get better. And that's it. And then Isaiah turns around and he leaves. Can you imagine? You'd be like, Isaiah, bro, come on. Wait, come back. And he's like, no, no, that's the word of the Lord. I'm done. And then look what Hezekiah does here. Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. You've got to hand it to him. I've, I've, I've read a ton of stuff on this. And some people are saying he should have been stoic. He should have just been resigned to the will of God and just accepted what the prophet said. It's like, seriously, bro? That's what, that's what you think this story is about? Not fighting, not praying, not beseeching God, not doing what the Puritans called suing God, saying, Lord, please, no, please. Hezekiah was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer. And he got some really, really bad news. And if you read the story, I mean, it's, I'm giving it away here. We've already read it. God healed him, right? He gave him 15 more years to live. So you've got to scratch your head and you're thinking, what the heck though? I mean, if, if God wanted to heal him, and by the way, the, the end of this says, and, and don't even worry about the king of Assyria, I'll take care of that too. <laughs> it's like in one fell swoop, a short prayer, and God's like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll heal you. I'll give you 15 more years, and I'll turn the king of Assyria away, and he'll be assassinated in, in his hometown, so, so don't even worry about that. If God wanted to do that all along, why did he send the prophet to give the bad news to Hezekiah in the first place? Have you ever wondered that? Theological conundrums that makes your mind want to explode. Why did God do that? Well, I have an answer. My answer is this. God wants us to pray. God wants us to provoke us in the right way to beseech him. He is inviting us into his presence because God wants to show up. He wants to reveal his power. I told you one of the most important passages in my life as a young man was 2 Chronicles 16.9. And it says this, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are seeking him and are loyal to him. You get that? God wants to show up. And I don't like to say show off because whenever God shows off, he's never just flexing his muscles just to say, look how amazing I am. He's, he's always doing that to say, look how much I care for my people who don't deserve me to care for them, but nevertheless, I'm filled with compassion and love and tenderness. God wants to show up and flex his muscles on behalf of his people. And he gets the most glory when we ask him to do that, and he specifically answers it. And that's exactly what Isaiah did. He turned his face to the wall. He got really serious, really somber, really humble, and he said, Lord, please... Please answer my prayer. And look, look what happened. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. 
And you, you know, you got, I don't know, I have a weird sense of humor. When I'm reading this, I'm thinking Isaiah's walking out, and he's like, that's what God said. And then God's like, stop. And he goes, what? He goes, man, come on. This palace is huge. I'm already like halfway out. And God's like, go back, go back. He's like, all right. So he goes back and he says, hey, look, look at it. Verse four, and before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. You know, another translation would be this, and it actually does say this in one of the other parallel accounts, because you have prayed. Because you have prayed. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for, the, and for my servant David's sake. Wow. Because you prayed, I'm going to heal you. You're not going to die. You're going to get 15 more years. And I'm going to turn the heart of the king of Assyria away from this place, and he'll be assassinated because you prayed. Now, here's the takeaway for you, okay? And I want you to feel the force of this. There are things that God will do for you if you pray that he will not do for you if you don't pray. It's what the Bible teaches. That is what the Bible teaches. James 4 says, you have not because you ask not. And that blows my mind because listen, I'm a firm believer in the power and the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, he is in the heavens and he has done whatsoever he pleased. God's sovereign and he's uninfluenced. His will is secret. He does whatsoever he wills, right? And yet at the same time, right alongside that amazing truth, the Bible also says God desires that his people seek his face, ask, seek, knock, pray, beg, beseech him, and God loves to hear those prayers and answer them. And I go back to my quote in the beginning if God answered all your prayers this week, what would have happened? Nothing. Your food would be blessed and that's it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm just being honest. For so many of us, that's, that's what we, we pray for God to do small things. Small things. He says, that, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, that will be done. Pray big things. God, save this person that looks so unsavable to me. And that's just the kind of person God loves to save, by the way, right? Because none of us are savable. Lord, this marriage looks, looks gone. It, I mean, the divorce papers are already served. But God, you're amazing and you're mighty and you're powerful. And you can restore it and mend it and put it back together if you want to. Please do that. God loves for us to bring petitions to him. Big petitions that make him look huge. One person said this, he said, prayer is the nerve that, move God, that moves God's muscle. I love word pictures like that. I love it. You know, even unbelievers know this about God sometimes and shame Christians. Sarah and I were watching a, it's a new documentary on Netflix. I haven't mentioned a documentary on Netflix in a while, so I need to. And it's called Last Breath. Some of you have probably seen it and it's a pretty good documentary and it's about a guy named Chris Lemon, and he is a deep sea diver, and he works on oil rigs underneath the North Sea. Um, and you have to depressurize yourself. Thank you. Yeah. 
You have to depressurize for like four days to even go to the depths that he goes to to work. And so they're on this huge ship out in the middle of the North, is it the North Atlantic? Whatever it is, the North Sea. Uh, and there's 18 foot swell, 18 meter swells, and it's back and forth, and all the computers on the ship shut down right in the middle of one of the most important dives. They're repairing this, these oil pipes in the bottom. And there's a guy that's in charge of all these divers, and his name is Duncan. And he's, the, the documentary is incredible because the people that were there are like narrating it. And they even used some of the actual footage that they, were, they captured on, on camera, on video, when this happened. All these divers, when they're down there, they have to depressurize for four days, and then they go down, and they all have this, this lifeline to them. They call it an umbilical cord, and that's where they have to have a rich mixture of helium and oxygen, so that goes through the umbilical cord. Hot water that they pipe into their suits because it's four degrees in the North Sea, okay? They have to give them electricity for light so they can see what they're doing, and they have communication means. So that's all these big wires wrapped around. Well, in the middle of this huge storm, the boat comes, uh, all the, the computers fail, and so it's drifting. It's drifting. And the only thing anchoring it are these, these people that are working at the bottom of the ocean. And one guy, a diver by the name of Chris Lemon, I think, his umbilical cord gets wrapped around an outcropping on this oil pipe. And, and, and all the people are saying, we could hear it stretching, 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 and all of a sudden it snapped. And there he is, left on the bottom of the seabed, and he only has five minutes of oxygen in a reserve tank on his back. And they're like, there's absolutely no hope. No hope. We're in the middle of a storm. This boat is drifting. And, he, and they had to leave him there. And it's really moving because the guy that's in charge of him, he's recounting like, this guy's like an, an incredible employee. He's faithful. He's engaged. He's building a dream house in England back in Edinburgh for his wife he said, or for his fiance. And they're going to get married. And he said, I'm going to have to go and tell his fiance, look, he went down for a dive and he never came back. He said, but there's like absolutely no hope. And this guy says this, Duncan says this. He says, I'm not a religious person by any stretch. He said, but I started praying as hard as I could. And it's just like dot, dot, dot. He leaves it at that. And then you watch. And I'm, I mean, I hate to give spoilers away, but this is my sermon illustration, okay? This guy went without oxygen for 37 minutes. 30 seven minutes and they were able to get the computer devices working go back retrieve him bring him up do mouth to mouth and the, and the, the sucker survived he survived it's amazing and then here's what's interesting though after that they give all the scientific reasons for how he survived you know well the water's four degrees and you know the that, that preserved the oxygen and they're giving all these reasons and it's like i know what happened i know what happened you, you know maybe god chose to answer a complete pagan's prayer. God can do that if he wants to. I'm not going to put God in a box. He does that sometimes, doesn't he? Praise God. But I thought, you know, we, have a, we could learn a lot from just that little documentary. It's like, ah, oh, it's too far gone. Don't even bother praying. There's no way. Scientifically, it will be impossible for da-da-da-da. And we do that. I want to pray big things. I want to pray kingdom-minded things like, Lord, revive this city. Do a revival here. Even if you don't use Grace Life Church to reach these people, use another church. It's so broken and dark here. People's lives are torn to pieces. There's so much heartache and pain, depression and anxiety and suffering and conflict. And Lord, just try, flex your muscles. Show what you can do. And use weak vessels like us. Maybe you do want to use Grace Church because then you definitely, get, definitely would get the glory if you use us, right? 
But God's power and prayer are so often, I mean, they're always connected. We don't always see the connection, but they're always connected. And that's why Jesus said things like, in Luke 18, men and women ought always to pray and not lose heart. You've got to love the way Hezekiah just shamelessly, like, Lord, I don't want to die. <laughs> I don't want to die. I don't want my legacy. And by the way, he did not have a child yet when this happened. He did not have a child yet when this happened. I had a great conversation with a member of our church that I visited a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about the age-old theological question. If God is absolutely sovereign and he knows the beginning from the end, right? And he has decreed the beginning from the end. And this will blow your mind. Why in the world should we pray? Why bother to pray? If whatever is going to happen has already been predestined to happen, and it's all in accordance with God's divine decree and secret counsel. Why do we pray? That's a great question, isn't it? What's the answer? Because God wants us to pray. <laughs> he commands us to pray. Beyond that, it's a privilege. Do you know, it's amazing. God invites us to participate, participate in, in Him shaping history. It's pretty amazing. One person said what's unbelievable is that God would give this amount of, of power to his people and entrust it to them. That's a good way to view it, isn't it? God knows the beginning from the end, and yet, and yet, he invites us to participate through our prayers. I want it, you know there's all kinds of things that people want to see and hear when they get to heaven. I want, I want God to play back the DVD or whatever of the creation of the world. I'd love to see that. That would be really cool. And some of the miracle periods. I'd love to see... Moses plague Egypt with many plagues is what it says in Hebrew, like a knockout. I'd love to see that, you know, in 1080i or like 4K in a, in a surround sound theater. But you know what? I, one of the things I really would, would like to be able to, the mysteries that God would unravel for me is like, Lord, show me how the strategic prayers of your people impacted and were woven into your sovereign control of history. I would love to see that. Like some little kid on his knees, in his bedroom, praying for his mommy and daddy to stay together. And God, God saying, I'll take that, I'll use that. It'd be amazing to see, wouldn't it? I mean, I know I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my grandma praying for me. Just a wayward, loose, rebellious kid in his 20s, living it up on weekends. And she was by her bed on her knees praying. A lot of you could say the same thing about your, your grandmothers, probably. A lot of grannies prayed us into the kingdom, man, didn't they? So our prayers and God's power are always connected. They're always connected. Even when we don't see it. One theologian said this, It is a tremendous truth. God desires to hear prayer. He allows the world to be in some sense, under the control of the power of prayer. That's just, that is staggering to me. You know, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, James says. And yet, for three years, he controlled the weather in Israel by his prayers. He was a man with a nature like ours. What's that mean? What's, what's that mean? He's a flawed human with clay feet. And yet, God heard his prayers because he prayed big things. He prayed big things. Short prayers. They weren't long so often we think you've got to pray for three hours to even get God's attention. No, you don't. Jesus got God's attention. <laughs> That's the only reason we can even enter into the throne room, right? And find a throne of grace, not a seat of judgment. 
God's on a throne of grace. He invites us to rush into his presence anytime that we want and ask him to do impossible things, to move mountains. Because with men, this is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. And he gets the glory for it. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't want to even imagine the scenario one day of asking God, why didn't you restore that marriage? Why didn't you build that church up? Why didn't you rescue that wayward, rebellious kid? And God looking at me and saying, why didn't you ask? That's the tragedy. Listen, the tragedy in the church is not unoffered, excuse me, it's not unanswered prayer. That's not a tragedy. The tragedy is unoffered prayer. It's the things we just will not pray about. We won't get on our knees. We won't get on our faces and say, Lord, please do this. Show your power. Flex your muscles. Show how glorious you are. I believe there are things that God would do if his people would ask. He would delight to do. And listen, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. So often we think that that's what prayer is. Martin Luther said that. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. We think we're like arm wrestling God, trying to convince him to do something he doesn't want to do. That's not true. That's a view of every false religion in the world, is you've got to convince them that you're worthy somehow. You don't play that game with God. We're going to talk about that at the last point. Hezekiah's prayer was a little misguided. So often we think we gotta, we got to give God our resume and say, look how faithful I am. Now, will you please answer the prayer? And God's like, you didn't need to give me that resume. That doesn't mean anything to me. I don't answer your prayers based on how righteous you are. Somebody else already filled that row. And you can pray in their name, not yours. <laughs> right? I remember um, when I was a kid... You ever see those shopping sprees? I don't know why. I was just paralyzed. It always made me nervous. They would give somebody like a 30-second shopping spree in this big department store, and they would give them an empty shopping basket, and they would have a camera crew there, and they would go absolutely bananas. You remember that? They, were try they had one shopping cart, 30 seconds. They could get anything they wanted in the store. And some of them just flipped out. Some of the, no, no offense, but some of the moms on there, they were just so accustomed to the things they had to get, they would run to like the laundry detergent aisle and start dumping big thick gallons of Ajax into their shopping cart, and that was it. And time's up. It's like, all right, good job. You got like $42 worth of, you know, laundry detergent here. And it's like, you know, the big screen TVs are down there. Or, or other, other people other people would go to like the candy aisle and start dumping. Look, here it is. Yeah, the true story. They go to the candy aisle and start dumping M&Ms. And, and so often, I think we're like that. I think of my father-in-law, Al. Um, if, if Al were given, he loves to fish, that's his passion. If he were given a shopping spree to uh, Bass Pro Shops, you know, they have all, y'all ever been in that store? It's amazing, man. They got, they got live fish in there you can watch. They've got clothes. They got, you know, $500 fishing rods. And they got 50 cent bags of, of M&Ms. I just would want to think that Al would go for the $500 fishing gear, right, Pops? Yeah. And I think so often as Christians, if you view prayer that way, we're going to the Ajax aisle and to the M&Ms and to the, we're just messing up, we're just playing. We're just playing around and God's like, will you ask me to do something hard? Will you ask me to do something that only I can get the glory for it? You can't explain it away with the oxygen and the helium mixture in the tank. It's like, no, that was me. That was me. You know what's interesting? If you read how God really did rescue uh, Hezekiah from the Assyrian threat, do you know this story? 
It says, and behold, that we don't have time to say everything in a sermon, but behold, that night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And in the morning, behold, they arose and there were corpses everywhere. And Hezekiah left and went back to Assyria. Isn't that amazing? Because of one man's prayer, one man's prayer, an angel of the Lord slaughtered 185,000 enemy soldiers. Wow. Now, now, go with me here. If Hezekiah had not prayed, I do not believe that God would have rescued Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. Now, this theologically, this will blow your mind because God did rescue them and he had to rescue them because that's how history played out. But he would not have rescued them had Hezekiah not prayed. God ordains the ends and he also ordains the means, which is prayer. And you can think about that for a while and it can blow your mind. But don't you want to be the, the, the means that God uses to accomplish big things? I do. I want to be a praying Christian and I want to pray impossibly big things for God to do. And last point, we're running out of run out of time here. Point three, don't pray in your own name. Don't pray in your own name. Look at Hezekiah's prayer here. Chapter 20, verse 3. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. The weeping bitterly part, um, God noticed. And the prayer, God noticed. But, but, but look at this. Look at verse uh, 5. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Wait a minute, God. What about all that faithfulness stuff that he was praying? Doesn't say anything about that, does it? Not one word. Does that encourage you or does that frustrate you? You can tell the truth. Like, what? This is a right. Yeah, I read the resume up. Here was a faithful king. Nobody like him since, nobody like him afterwards. And God seems to completely overlook that and looks instead at his faith. It's not your faithfulness that's going to merit God answering your prayers, it's the object of your faith. And it better be Jesus. It better be Jesus. There's a reason why we are commanded in the New Testament to pray in the name of Jesus, not in your own name. <laughs> you know, we do that. Maybe we don't, we don't have the audacity to say in the name of Tommy, I pray, amen. But sometimes we stack up our own resumes. Now, don't be too hard on Hezekiah. He's dying. And he was a good king. And he's just mentioning, Lord, remember, I'm one of the only kings that's been faithful to you. But it's just interesting to me that God doesn't, that's not what garners God's attention and I find that comforting as a Christian because for all the acts of faithfulness that I could list, and I've done that before. Lord, I'm a preacher. Come on, I'm on your team, God. I planted a church. I left a big established church. I came over here all alone, just me and Jeff. No, no, no. That don't work with God. I've tried that. Don't, don't do that with God. That doesn't work for him. He's not interested in your resume. He's interested in his son's resume. If you want to garner God's attention, say, Lord, because of Jesus. It's amazing. There's a book written by Paul Miller, and it's called A Praying Life. And he says this, and forgive me if you think this is irreverent. I don't, 
Anything I can do to help you, to help you wrap your mind around this. He says, imagine that your prayer uh, is a person. And he's wanting royal access to a powerful king. But he's a drunk. <laughs> okay? And he's a beggar. And he hasn't had a shower in years. And so here he comes. This is your prayer, okay? This is your prayer. And he's like, hey. <laughs> he's walking around and he goes, hey, I need to see the king. And they're like, who in the world are you? He goes, I need to see the king. And he told me I could see him wherever I wanted to. And then they're like, look, buddy, go away. And he goes, in the name of Jesus. And then everyone's like, 10, hook. And the lights come on and the gates open and the red carpet is rolled out and everyone stands to attention. And this guy gets an escort right down to the doors of the palace and right inside the throne room where the king says, I'm so delighted that you came. What can I do for you today? It's a powerful image, isn't it? The one thing that changed everything was in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Based on his perfect life and his atoning death and his victorious resurrection, I come to you in his name. That's what it means to pray in the name of somebody. One of my favorite authors is Ron Dunn. He was a pastor in Texas. He's gone on to be with the Lord. And I'll never forget, he wrote a book called When Heaven is Silent. And he said, I remember one week, you know, it was my habit every night to pray and and that would be the last thing that I would do before I went to bed. And he said, I was praying one night and I just didn't feel worthy to be in the Lord's presence. He said, I hadn't read my Bible that day. It had been a really weak, uh, a weaker season in my life of witnessing and preaching. I just didn't feel, I was tired. I was exhausted. I had marriage issues. He said, I just didn't feel worthy to come to God and pray. And he said, I didn't hear God's audible voice, but it was almost as if I had an argument with God. And I said, Lord, I don't feel worthy to come into your presence. And God said, well, well, Ron, would you feel worthy to come and pray to me if, if you had led 20 people to Christ? And he said, that, yeah, yeah, that, that would help. I'd feel a lot better about coming in your presence. He said, okay. He said, would you feel better if you'd read the whole Old Testament in two days and memorized the Psalms? And he said, oh, man, I'd be bold then. <laughs> I'd rush right into your throne room. And he says, uh, well, I'll tell you what, Ron, why don't you go ahead and pray then, but pray in your own name, not mine. And Ron Dunn in the book says, it was at that moment that I realized and remembered that the floor of the throne room is sprinkled with the blood of Christ, not the sweat of Ron Dunn. <laughs> Which is true, right? We don't come in our own name. We don't come based on our own faithfulness. And I know it's another sermon for another day, how those things so often, will God hear the prayer of somebody who is just embroiled in sin, unrepentant, hardened and calloused, there's some truth to that too, but that's a different sermon and a different topic. I'm talking about for Hezekiah, it wasn't his faithfulness that garnered God's attention. It was the object of his trust. He was clinging to Jehovah. That's what mattered to God. And that's still what matters to him. So those are the three points today. Point number one, sometimes bad things happen to God's people. And point number two, God's power and your prayer are related. And listen, they're not related like distant cousins or like even a brother and a sister, they're related like a parent giving birth to a child, okay? And the third point is, is, of course, don't pray in your own name. Pray in the name of Christ. This is what Paul Miller said in another place. He says, the very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. We are helpless. We can't do life on our own. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us the gift of his help.
See, we have God's ear. We, we have God's face. He always hears us and He always delights to respond. And listen, friends, all of that is for one scandalous reason. Because there was another who was perfectly faithful, who was perfectly righteous, who always clung to his father. And there was a time when he called out to his father and his father turned his face away. And his prayer never got past the ceiling. Do you remember that on the cross? When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't hear his prayer. He didn't answer his prayer. Why? Because that's what you and I deserve. All of us deserve for God to turn his back completely on us. That's what we deserve. But God did that to Jesus in our place so that now we'll never have to see the backside of God again. We'll always be able to see his face. We'll always have his hand. Even when we can't see his face, we know he has us by his hand. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. He paid the penalty that you and I deserve and he rose from the grave victoriously so that you and I always have access into God's presence. We can come with confidence we can come with boldness because we come to a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. So here's the application, okay, the takeaway. Number one, don't be surprised when bad things happen to God's people. Secondly, pray. Pray knowing that through prayer, God will show up, He will act, He will bless, and He will deliver in a way that He will not if you do not pray. And finally, pray in the name of Jesus. Don't pray in your own name. William Carey was the father of modern missions, and he said this, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And what he means by that is pray. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the greatest prayer that could ever be offered is for you to come and, and save a sinner who is hopeless and helpless, who's been alienated from you, who finds no strength to find their way back. They're in the dark. They're lost. They feel hopeless and forsaken. But Lord, you, you bid them, even them, to pray, to cry out to you and ask for you to come and rescue them, to forgive them, to open their eyes, to see the, the welcoming hand of Christ with, with nail-pierced holes in it. I pray if anyone is here, Lord, they've never uttered that cry. Today would be the day when they would find Christ. They would find freedom. They would find forgiveness. They would be fulfilled. They would find peace. But most importantly, Lord, they would have their, their sins covered, their transgressions put away. If anyone's here, Lord, I pray they would do that even now. And for others, just remind us, Lord, I pray this is a, a convicting sermon in the right way, in the way that your Holy Spirit gently brings about conviction to remind us that you desire that your people pray and there's things you desire to do that you will not do until and unless we do pray and cry out to you. So in boldness, encourage us, Lord. Motivate us today to do that throughout the week and, and see you show up and answer prayers. Whether it's a crumbling marriage, just a, a breached relationship, whether it's a chronic sickness that's mysterious nobody else can figure out, whether it's PTSD or depression or anxiety or just this feeling of darkness that sweeps over us, whether it's the sadness from a profound loss, somebody taken from us, or just a hopeless situation with somebody we love, Lord, just move us to pray and call out to you. And I ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.